series that I like to call RUF is like dot 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 and then I describe a metaphor that I think to kind of convey what we want RUF to be about and tonight what I want to do is this one RUF is like dot 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 a slow cooker I don't know if you're a food person or a meat person and you've probably if you are or I'm guessing you're a food person because you're a human being and uh the difference between a microwave and a slow cooker, especially if we're doing warming some kind of meat or cooking some kind of meat, microwave zaps it really fast, usually overdoes it a little bit, and the, the taste just isn't as quality. If you've ever done like ribs or barbecue or even like a Boston butt in a slow cooker, and it, it takes forever, and you have to be patient, and it takes a long time, and it's low, long, slow heat. And here's why I say that. Here's how, how is our up like that? I don't want you to be a flash-in-the-pan microwave Christian. My goal for you is to love Jesus in 15 years. You know, sometimes we think a lot about and talk a lot about, like, this idea of I'm on fire for Jesus. And sometimes we misconvey the gospel because the gospel is that Jesus is on fire for you. And the more you begin to get that, the beauty of that, the more you begin to be, this becomes a safe place with your doubts to, to process them. This becomes a safe place with your struggles to be open about them. And it becomes a safe place to become the kind of person who perseveres. I have a friend who likes to say, if you could make one Christian bumper sticker, it would be this one. Perseverance beats zeal every time. And that's what I'm talking about. Someone who loves Jesus, loves the church in 15 years, RUF is like dot, 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 a slow cooker. All right, that being said... If you've been with us, we're, in portrait, we're doing portraits of Jesus from the Gospel of John. And tonight we're looking at uh, John 3. And this is, one of our, this is one of my favorite passages. If you know anything, grew up in the church or grew up in Sunday school about John the Baptist. This is one of my favorite John the Baptist moments. And I'm going to read it for us. John 3, 22 through 30. It's in your handout. And I'm reading from the ESV. And the thought that I'm asking tonight is, especially for those of you who know Jesus... What it looks like to serve him, what it looks like to minister in his name. That's, we're especially thinking about that tonight, how hard that can be. So John three twenty-two to 30, I'm going to read it for us. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also, John the Baptist, also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. You know the story, he's going to be put in prison and then beheaded, essentially. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, 
He is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let me pray for us, and I want to get, get into what I want to talk about. Jesus, we could have no better prayer tonight than what John just said. That we might decrease, that you might increase. That we might know the blessing of humility, that we might know the blessing of self-forgetfulness. That we might know the blessing of becoming smaller in our own lives, that you might become larger and loom larger in our hearts and in our imaginations and in our loves and affections. And Jesus, we know that uh, it's going to take a miracle of you working in us for that to even happen. And Lord, I pray even as we think and think about these disciples, think about their jealousy, think about where they were in their self-centeredness, and even see ourselves, hopefully in this passage, that you would be gracious to meet us exactly where we are in all of our brokenness and sinfulness. And show us your beauty. Show us your grace. Show us the joy that John has here, we pray. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm a pretty big SNL fan, and one of the top SNL skits that I've ever seen that's still one of my all-time favorites is a Will Ferrell skit from back in the day. And it's a Will Ferrell skit about where he's sitting down, he's gotten home from dinner, and he's sitting down at the dinner table with his daughter, teenage daughter, and his wife. And the whole scene is just dead quiet, and all you can hear is the clanging of knives and forks over plates. And then they all start shouting over each other. Like they start just yelling things, like really angrily yelling things. And then at one point, Will Ferrell stops the conversation and yells as loud as he can, I am an important person. I drive a Dodge Stratus. And it's the scene where it's just, it's ridiculous the way he says it. And every time I watch, part of why I love that skit, it's not just because I love Will Ferrell and not just because I think he's hilarious and not just because I think it's a ridiculous, the dumb things that we sometimes say. The reason I love that skit is I see myself in it. And I think you do too. And the way that I see myself and the way that I think you see yourself is the way that we desperately try to hold on to things that we feel like make us something important. That we all, and there's a sense we can say we all have a Dodge Trash. We all have something in our lives that we look to that says, look at this, this makes me an important person. Look at my GPA. This makes me, I have a 4.0. This makes me, I am an important person. Look at this relationship that I have. The fact that I have a boyfriend, this makes me an important person. We all have things, you fill in the blanks. I, I am an important person because blank. And what I love about this passage, and what I hate about this passage, is how much I see myself in it, and how much I hope that you see yourself in it. Is here we have John's disciples, and if you're looking at it, they're incredibly jealous Because basically, the the way you need to understand the story is their ministry is not the sexy ministry anymore. Because this guy across the water, who they can't even speak his name, all the people are going to him. And here are these disciples, and they're they're full of self-pity, they're full of jealousy, they're full of self-centeredness, they're full of self-comparison. And it's interesting because that's what happens, right? When you and I look to to anything other than Jesus, when we look to a relationship or we look to something to put in the resume or we look to something that we think is cool about ourselves, inevitably it's always going to lead us to either what? Arrogance or despair. It's always going to lead us to be constantly comparing ourselves to one another, which is why when something awesome happens in your friend's life, typically your first reaction is not like, man, I'm so excited, let's have a party. Your, Your reaction is, 
You fake like you're happy for them and then you inwardly weep because why didn't it happen to me? Like, why am I single and they're engaged? Like, why did I, we both apply for that internship and they got it and, and I didn't? What's wrong with me? We do this thing when we find anything and look to anything other than Jesus, we inevitably lead, it leads us to three things. It leads us to self-comparison. We're constantly judging ourselves by one another. It leads us to self-pity. We, we can't leave the room because we feel so sad for ourselves and so we binge watch seasons of Walking Dead. We, we, it leads us to self-importance. That I can't feel okay about myself unless I see myself as important in some way, big or small. And that's exactly where these disciples are. I mean, it's, in a sense, we could say those three things, self-comparison, self-importance, self-pity, are kind of like the Dementors, if you're a Harry Potter person. I mean, they really are, especially when you think about following Jesus into ministry, which everyone is called to. You belong to Jesus you are someone who's called to do ministry uh, and to follow him into ministry and to minister to those around you. Your roommates, your classmates, your family, your friends, you're called to be a minister. And there's a sense in which the dementors of self-comparison and self-pity and self-importance begin sucking all of the life and joy out of what it means to know and follow Jesus to the places he's calling us to, to the people he's calling us to. And what I want to look at this passage and think about tonight is what I think are like three antidotes in this passage to what I just want to call self-centeredness. Because the reality is, if you're like me, you're a self-centered person, I'm sort of assuming that the Bible is true, and that your greatest problem is, is you, and that that's, that's actually the problem in your life. You know, G.K. Chesterton, a long time ago, he's one of my, he's a C.S. Lewis before C.S. Lewis, and the London Times wrote, they had this thing where they said, write in, we are asking the question, what is wrong with the world? And a lot of people wrote in and said, poverty is what's wrong with the world. Uh, greed, economic greed is what's wrong with the world. And Chesterton's response, and you maybe heard this before, is genius. D- he wrote in and simply said, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And what he's saying is, this, my problem is I can't get beyond myself. How, how am I ever going to get beyond myself? And I think John here gives us three, really Jesus gives us three beautiful things that he's calling us to. They're kind of antidotes to our self-centeredness. Here's the first one. He's calling us to repent of our jealousy. He's calling us, secondly, to rest in God's sovereignty. And then lastly, he's calling us to rejoice in God's glory. To repent of your jealousy, to rest in God's sovereignty, and to rejoice in God's glory. Let's work out what I mean by each of those things. So first thing with me for a second about what it means to repent of your jealousy. Again, look at the passage. John's disciples, they come to John if you're looking at it. And if you look at it in verse 26, they say this. Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. What's beautiful, let's read into the lines a little bit. What's beautiful here and kind of really sad here, and the way that you can tell they're jealous, is they can't even bring themselves to say Jesus' name. They're like, that guy. I hate that guy. That's what happens when we get super jealous of people, right? There's a sense in which we can't, we can't stand being around them. Being around them is painful because we're just so filled with envy and jealousy at what, their, what is going on in their lives, but it's not implicitly going on in our lives. What is happening for them that is not happening for us. And so we're filled and stuck in this sort of, we're drowning in, dripping with jealousy and envy. And it's funny because they want to be the ones, this is the thing you have to see, they want to be the ones through whom amazing things are happening. 
They want to be the ones who are successful. They want to be one, the ones who are seen as amazing, together, cool, awesome people. And it's not happening. This was a, I had a really humbling moment in this sense because I'm in ministry. And I love that the context of this is ministry. Like, if you break this down, they're actually jealous of Jesus, right? Like, that's kind of the crazy thing here, is the person they're jealous of is not some random dude doing ministry. It's Jesus himself. And in ministry, I had this moment where a couple years ago, there was a student that kind of came around RUF a little bit, and I'd met with them. We'd gone and grabbed sandwiches and tried to have the awkward conversation that some of you have experienced with me. And it was one of those ones that did not go super well, and I felt pretty bad about it. And this was a person who, who had self-admittedly said, I'm not a Christian, here are my questions, and I tried my best to kind of answer some of those questions. We met one time, and then we never really met again. He came to RUF and me one more time. And then the local pastor met with him, and on the spot, the student got converted. The student, this months later, this local pastor has been meeting with him. The student, we're in church. The student's in church. He's sharing his testimony and if I'm being honest, y'all, like, my thought wasn't, praise Jesus, that this student came into the kingdom. My thought in my heart was, what's wrong with me? I'm a failure as a pastor. I couldn't even be a part of this, this, this student's conversion. Like, what's wrong with me? And the insanity of that is that I was eaten up with jealousy instead of rejoicing in the joy of what Jesus had done through another person in his life. And you have stories like that, too. Where you're so filled with jealousy that you can't rejoice in what Jesus is doing in someone else's life. And here's the question that you and I have to wrestle with. The question that I have to put myself all the time is simply this. Who do you want people to love? You or Jesus? Who do you want people to think is sort of like the deal? You or Jesus? And John is saying here like the freedom and joy in life is found in it being Jesus. But we have to repent of our jealousy. So first, you have to repent of your jealousy. Well, how do you do that? Second, you have to rest in God's sovereignty. Okay, sovereignty is a big word. It simply means God is, God is in control. Nothing in your life happens by accident. It all comes through the loving hands of your Father, who is reigning as king over everything. You know, R.C. Sproul likes to say there's no such thing as a maverick molecule. And what he means by that, there's no such thing as an, ac- there's no such thing as an accident. There's no such thing as anything that doesn't happen the way that God intends it to happen. In this sense, when we think about and get stuck in the question of God's will for our lives, this is where it's interesting, where there's a sense in which we're supposed to rest that God knows what he's doing and everything that he does in my life. Deuteronomy 29, 29, if we were to go there, basically says a very simple thing. It makes this distinction that the revealed things, Moses said, belong to us, but the hidden things belong to the Lord your God. And sometimes we get that confused. Because we want to kind of ignore the revealed things that Jesus very explicitly commands us to do, like flee lust, love your neighbor, we could go on. And we want to obsess about the hidden things. What is God going to do? What is, he, what is his hidden will for my life? Who am I going to marry? What kind of job am I going to have? Instead of focusing on what scripture is actually telling me to be and do as a person, we could, we could, we could do... The best thing you can do if you're struggling with God's will right now is to go memorize just the sermon on them and just go memorize the Beatitudes. This is what God wants me to be. This is the kind of person he wants to make me into. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Like, that is God's will for you. And, but instead, you know, what you and I do, instead of resting in his revealed will and resting that he alone knows he loves me, he sent Jesus to die for me, 
if he sent Jesus to die for me, Paul says in Romans 8, if he did not spare his own son, how will he also keep good things for me? But no, he's going to freely give me every good thing I could possibly need. And because of that, I can rest in the hidden things that I long to know, like marriage and career and the next four years of my life and what that's going to look like. And the beautiful thing here is what John says, if you're looking at it in verse 27, because that's his answer to the disciples. The answer to envy, this is what I want you to see, the answer to jealousy and envy is always God's resting in God's sovereignty. Saying that as much as I love or hate my life right now, God knows what he's doing and he loves me. And this is what he has for me. That's what Job comes to, the realization Job comes to. If you've ever read, like tried to suffer your way through the book of Job, what does he say? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What is he saying? My resting place is that God knows what he's doing in my life. And I don't mean the big things. I mean the small things. I'm, here, let me roll this out for you. God knows who you're, God put your roommate and you together. As much as you feel like that's an accident, and as much as maybe you are angry at him for it, he put you together. Why? He wants, he wants to teach you things. He wants you to learn to love them. Listen, one of the best things that could prepare you for marriage is learning to love a difficult roommate. Can I just say that? Because that is marriage, by the way. Like, I love my wife. We are very different people. Like, we like to do things very differently. But this idea of resting, that God knows what he's doing in my life, that's what John says. He says, a person can't receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Nothing can come into my life, good or bad, except it comes through the hands of my Heavenly Father. God's sovereignty is meant to be a resting place for me. And this means, the question we have to ask ourselves here is, are we content? How are you ever going to get to a place where you're content with your life? Where you're content, as hard as it might be, and you're content with the circumstances, whatever they are, and the place, the, the only way you get to contentment is resting in His sovereignty. I love, I love the way that John Newton, if you, you have it in the front of your handout, talks about this and the idea of, of a willingness to, to submit to whatever it is that God is doing in my life right now. And here's what he says. He's actually writing to a fellow pastor. And I love what he says because sometimes I think you and I mistake. In this name, we mistake that we don't simply want to be faithful in submitting to what God is doing in my life, but we want to be awesome. And we want God to make us awesome. And the question for us is, do you want to be faithful or do you want to be awesome? And here's what John Newton said about it. He said, I hope your soul prospers. I do not ask you if you are always filled with sensible comfort, but do you find your spirit more bowed down to the feet and will of Jesus? And this is what I love. So as to be willing to serve him for the sake of serving him and to follow him, as we say, through thick and thin, to be willing, and I love this line, to be anything or nothing so that he may be glorified. I could give you plenty of good advice upon this head, but I am ashamed to do it because I so poorly follow it myself. I want to live with him by the day, to do all for him, to receive all from him, to possess all in him, to live all to him, to make him my hiding place and my resting place. Do you want to be faithful or do you want to be awesome? So first, if we're ever going to have antidotes for our self-centeredness, first... We have to repent of our jealousy. Second, we've got to rest in God's sovereignty. And then thirdly, I want you to see that we have to rejoice in God's glory. And this is where the, the metaphor that John gives is perfect for what it means to live the Christian life and to do ministry, to follow Jesus into ministry. And the metaphor he gives, the image he gives is simply what? It's a, it's a, it's a best man at a wedding. 
What is the best man's role? Now, it's interesting. In John's day, the best man did a lot more than a best man. Like, my best man was my best friend. And he really didn't do a whole lot except kind of pray with me before my wedding and kind of stand there and look pretty or look handsome, I guess, is what he looked. Um, yeah, handsome. But best man, a best man in John's day actually made some arrangements for the wedding. He actually you know, helped the service go well. He, 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 started, he put stuff together. And the goal was simply this, to put the spotlight on the bride and the groom. To, to, to really, the, the focus of any wedding is what? It's, it's the bride and the groom. And John says, my joy is seeing people fall in love with Jesus. My, my, my love, my passion, my part, if you will, my small part in this story is to shine the spotlight on Jesus. To make Jesus as, as beautiful and, 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 and believable as possible. To make Jesus look good. To make Jesus the center of attention. To make Jesus the one who his, the people are going to because they love him and want to be with him. And the image that John is drawing from is a beautiful Old Testament image from a passage in Isaiah where Isaiah, God says about his people in Isaiah 62, he says this. He says, you shall no longer be called desolate and forsaken. This is the verse that actually literally made me want to go into ministry. Sometimes we talk about verses, you know, like uh, life. I don't really buy into the whole life. What's your life verse? I don't like all of them. I don't know my life. I mean, but this would be the closest thing I have to a life verse. And it's this beautiful passage in Isaiah 62 where God looks at his people, broken, battered, bruised by sin, people who do not have it together. In the words of Isaiah, people who are prostitutes and whores who have run and, and fled and, done, and gone to everything but him. And he has this beautiful line where he says, I'm going to change your name. And your name is no longer to be, is no longer to be called desolate or forsaken. But your new name is going to be called, my de- it's literally Hephzibah, my delight is in her. And then he says this, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so will I rejoice over you. Do you want to know how God feels about you? He feels the way that a husband feels when he looks into his bride's eyes and says, I do. I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I'm willing to do anything and everything to be with you. It's October, almost. It's fall. That means in my household we're getting ready for Christmas, which is kind of depressing in its own right. It's like, let's just enjoy the pumpkins and stuff. But we, my wife loves Christmas because she loves Jesus, she says, which I think is a little bit of a cop-out. She just likes Christmas music. But we get into Christmas movies, and all-time favorite Christmas movie for me is Rudolph. The Red-Nosed Reindeer, in case you... The only Rudolph there is. And uh, the scene that, when I watch it with my kids every time, that, that, that just reduces me to tears, and I'm really silly, but it just gets me every time, is the scene where Rudolph's in Misfit Island. You know, I, I hope you know the story. If you don't, get on Amazon, rent uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and watch it. He's on Misfit Island, and he, there's that scene where, you know, he's feeling lonely and left out. And there's that scene where Clarissa says, you're cute. And Rudolph does that thing where he's like, I'm cute. I'm cute. She, I'm, she, she thinks I'm cute. I, I, yeah. <laughs> and I'm watching that and I'm, I'm like crying. And my kids are like, daddy, why are you crying? And it's because of this. 
I watch that scene, and sometimes what I think is, Sammy, what do you think God thinks of you? What do you think God thinks of you? It's more than that you're cute. Is that his love for you was willing to go to any lengths to make you his. As a bridegroom rejoices over a bride, so your God, your God, rejoices over you. Listen, this is the thing. So let me apply this in two ways. Because This is the thing I want you to get when you think about following Jesus, especially following him into ministry. Uh, and I mean, again, all of us are called to ministry. There are kind of two things, two applications I want to make thinking about this. Here's the first one. Your problem right now, as much as you think it's your roommates, as much as you think it's you made the wrong college decision, as much as you think it's I wish I just chose a different major, as much as you think I wish my friends would not be like they are, as much as you think whatever you are thinking is your problem, can I humbly submit to you that maybe you're your problem? Like that maybe your own jealous, bitter Heart is your problem. That maybe your problem is that you you cannot submit because you love control. You cannot bring yourself to be okay with what God wants for you. Because you still think that what I want should line up with what God wants. What if God wants something else for you? Could it be that your, your dissatisfaction, your discontentment is you? Could it be that what needs to change is not your circumstances, but you? Could it, I mean, that's... Right. I mean, that's a total story, right? Everyone thinks of changing the world. No one thinks of changing themselves. And part of what John is saying here is, listen, disciples, my friends, your problem is not that that ministry is, is growing. Your problem is you. Your problem is you can't rejoice in what Jesus is doing in his kingdom because you're too obsessed with yourself. Which leads me to the second thing, the last thing I want to say, is what begins bringing you into this place. What I love about this story is just John. Like, John is not perfect. We're going to find out when John goes to prison. Like, he gets pretty disillusioned because he's like, Jesus, I thought when you were going to come, you were going to, like, start getting stuff done and, like, killing, like, like, setting up your kingdom. And it doesn't seem like that's happening. And maybe John gets a little disillusioned in prison. He's not perfect by any means. But here he gives us this beautiful picture of what it looks like to have joy in the Christian life. To be not an Eeyore and not even a Tigger. Just to be Winnie. I don't know who the character you would be would be, but... To be someone who's filled with joy as you love and follow Jesus. And I think the, the, the image he gives us is what C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller and a lot of people have called blessed self-forgetfulness. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard the way C.S. Lewis talks about humility. He says humility is not thinking less of yourself. Think, it's thinking of yourself less. And his idea is you've got to get something beyond yourself. You've got to get out of yourself somehow. You've got to get focused. The way that you... How do you... How are you going to stop? How do you stop thinking about something that you shouldn't be thinking about? The goal isn't that you sort of say, stop thinking about it. Just stop thinking about it. The goal is you have to put your mind, put your affections, put your, put your attention onto something else, something bigger, something that captures your attention and imagination. We went out west this summer, and here's the way I think about it. We went, we drove, we were crazy. We took our four kids and literally drove to Los Angeles to visit my sister this summer. And one of the things that we went to see was the Grand Canyon, because the Grand Canyon was amazing. We'd never seen it before. But there was this moment where I got really frustrated with my son. Because here we are at the Grand, the Grand Canyon. Which if you've ever seen it, is hard to put into words. I mean, it's a majestic. Like, I'm not really like a cheesy spiritual nomad. But the experience is pretty breathtaking. I mean, it's just a pretty 
majestic, glorious experience, that Grand Canyon. It's, it's beautiful. And here's my son. He's like, Dad, um, he's got his, we, we gave him an iPhone for the trip, my old iPhone. It's like cracked screen. He's looking at his cracked iPhone. He's like, Dad, like, I need a game right now. Dad, Dad like, I need, I need a game. And he's melting down about games on his iPhone, and we're at the Grand Canyon. And I want to throw the phone into the canyon and say, look, look, young man, this is life. This is living. But I, that's how I feel. I mean, that's us, right? We miss Jesus all the time. Because we're so focused on And the goal is to fix your eyes on him. And to understand he's always bigger and more beautiful and more glorious than you've imagined him to be. I'll close with Donald Miller's got a line from Black Jazz I've always liked where he says... The most difficult lie I've ever contended with is this. Life is a story about me. And John could say, we could say from this passage, the most beautiful truth you could ever find joy and rest in is that life is a story about Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we need you to work in us in these ways. Uh, We are helpless apart from your spirit's work in us. And I pray specifically that you would apply... um, to whatever, where, however we come, whatever we think our problem is tonight, you would be gracious to meet us, to show us the places we need to repent, to show us the places we need to rest in your sovereignty, to show us the places where we're missing the glorious things you are doing, not only in us, but on campus, in Columbia, in the lives of our family and friends. And Lord, we ask your help and grace in these ways. We pray in your name, Lord Christ. Amen.